Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 9. The trip to Geriano Colony, deep in a Mikotenda system, and next on the itinerary, was uneventful. Certainly for me, but apparently for everyone else. Seen objectively, you might wonder why things were just going on as normal aboard Dorcas of the Heather. I'd ask that same question when I was first getting grilled by CSO Mino. It turned out that deaths aboard cruises happened more often than people imagined even murders. Statistically, this amounted to a very small number of incidents per year, but it was something they were all well-trained to deal with. One of the most notable aspects of these procedures was that things should go on as if nothing had ever happened, because, for everyone else, it hadn't. Under no circumstances should the passengers be given any details, unless it actually concerned them. Well, that might have worked on the bigger cruises with thousands of vacationers, but not on a relatively small one where gossip was the most popular form of entertainment. The laws in this stretch of the empire regarding what to do with a mobile murder scene, a victim's corpse, and a grieving widow and her children must have either been extremely lax or something else was going on. Imagine that. Unlike Kezika, which had been located right at the edge of the star system, making it technically a rim stay, the next place was situated about 12 hours travel, for us, inside the gravity shadow of the star system. Not deep in the well, not a big inconvenience. This was a fairly common setup for colonies and stations, since coming aboard took a little time, and that meant time for others to react, just in case they needed to. Even communication took at least a couple seconds. This sort of orbital placement, if not the actual colony itself, was a holdover from the Great Interstellar War, when a few seconds to react could actually matter. That was a long time back, even before anyone like S.G. Ciala was around. Age reassignment had yet to be developed. No one alive understood what the galaxy was like during that time. Not from first-hand knowledge. It must have been an era of fear and fatalism, with artificial settlements being dropped into the best compromises between safety and practicality that the orbits of stars could offer. Much of that might have been illusory, since, even now, gunners on military vessels referred to space stations as clay pigeons, in reference to just how much fun they were perceived to be to pick off from a distance. Unlike Kezika Station, which was owned by a single family, Juriano Colony was the possession of a collection of noble houses, and therefore a socio-political anchor in this area of space. It was a very big place, a true settlement. 
The shiny, hyper-upbeat literature stated that over 264 million people currently lived upon it, with another 50 million coming and going at any one time. Tube-shaped, as all the bigger stations had to be, Giuliano offered a mix of artificial gravities of both the centripetal and technological kinds. This meant that all floors, elevators, rooftops, and basements, everywhere on station, enjoyed the same, comfortable, near-Terran normal gravity. Mixing AG styles this way was a hallmark of the Empire. The more work I did in noble space, the more I saw it in use and liked it. This station was not a new place, but it considered itself a modern metropolis and did its level best to make sure everyone else did, too. There was a local government headed by a guy known as the Muridan, appointed by the noble-owned company. A complicated bureaucracy existed underneath the Muridan, including a fairly large police service enforcing those laws agreed upon by the nobles. Impressively large, bustling, and dynamic, people who came to Giuliano Colony visited, conducted business, and gawked. They stood around, dashed around. There was no way to see it in a single trip or even a dozen. The wealthy passengers from Dorcas of the Heather would likely book automated cabs to take them to certain predefined tourist sites, like famous restaurants, grand museums, imposing churches, and exclusive stores. A theater district near the center of the place was always a draw. My first view of anything in Amico Tenda system was Kevin's warm smile. Hey there, he offered gently. How do you feel? Um... Pretty good, I replied with surprise, because I was alert immediately, unlike the usual cryofog that could dog you for the rest of the day after rising like an animated corpse from a commercial freeze tube. What kind of cold unit is this? It's the way to travel. I then put that statement to the lie when I fell to coughing, though it only lasted a few seconds. No aches or pains. No inner ear dizziness or sedative hangover. The aftermath of cold passage can be as rough as a steel file, depending upon the relative quality of the equipment, suspensive drugs, and expertise of the technicians who put you under and brought you out. No surprise, then, that this was easily among the best I'd ever experienced. How did our exit from Karaya's system go? I asked after a quick shower and change into a clean flight suit. I was back in my own street clothes now. The kitchen uniform was company property, and I wouldn't be needing it. I didn't hear that anything bad happened. Why? The place was spooky. He nodded sagely. His bedside manner was really impeccable. He informed me that interviews with more cops were pending, but... This time, the captain was letting them come aboard, insisting on it, actually. No more hide-and-seek games. In the meantime, I was to have a meal, relax, and wait until I was called. I strolled to the crew chow hall, which was really just a small room, cramped from too many tables and chairs. There was a robotic serving line along one side, taking up even more space, it was cafeteria-style, like a few automat diners I'd seen. 
The big difference here, though, was that the food was the very best, made by the very best, which I wasn't and never would be. There were a couple of folks from housekeeping and a few young helper types from engineering in there, and they offered knowing nods as I took up a tray and got in line, as if they were all clued in to what was going on. If true, then they were way ahead of me. This short diversion in my life was at an end. The steward training I'd obtained on my own, separately from this gig, had earned me a professional grade that allowed for the safe handling of drink dispensers and frozen meals in a commercial context. I picked up a lot of experience in a short time on this trip, though, perhaps enough to obtain the next certification. That would allow me to, I don't know, legally make toast for passengers and crew? It was an active effort to maintain a positive outlook, but I found a note in my inbox when I logged on to Dorcas's network. It was from the ship's purser. She was a busy, fussy woman I'd only spoke with once or twice since coming aboard. The message was terse, but it informed me that I had been pulling regular pay during the voyage, as per company policy, including when frozen down. That was good news. Yukus could see through walls, I think, because she appeared in front of me suddenly on the other side of the automated serving line. There was enough room for people to get back there and do it all manually, if needed, and of course for cleaning. That was part of the kitchen staff job. It had been mine on a daily basis, though not this day. Up and at him, cowboy, she shouted in my face, then banged on a pot with a ladle, which she'd brought along for this reason. The noise made me and everyone else in the mess jump. I didn't have to put up with this, but I was rather shocked by my own emotional reaction. Her bullying attention suddenly felt flattering and even somewhat comforting. I eased into an honest chuckle, despite all, and it was as if I'd slapped her. Yukus was shocked and disappointed, then immediately tried another trick. We heard you were getting thawed out this shift, Ejok, so I whipped this up just for you, special-like. And she produced a beautiful bread pudding from a galley portage box. It was a conical dessert with a flat top and had caramelized sugar as a glazing and a sprig of fresh-looking mint for garnish. Really quite elegant to behold. Did you spit in it? Only the best ingredients for you, my boy. No substitutes and no shirking. Go on. Her excitement was infectious, and despite the practical joke nature of the thing, I decided to indulge her. In a flash, all I saw before me was a skinny, lonely woman, afraid of the universe. A person who could only interact with it in very specific ways. For whatever reason, this joking around but not really thing she'd perfected was one of them. Probably everywhere she went, every kitchen, every berth, there was an ejock she singled out. That wouldn't have made her a good person, perhaps, but at least she wasn't dull. You know, the gag works best if I don't see it coming, right? It's not a gag. It's a work of art. Eat, eat. She was grinning so maliciously I couldn't resist. 
I figured this thing was laced with garlic or concentrated capsicum extract or something else horrible and was now rather curious. It turned out to have a filled center, as might a puff pastry, only the filling was a faux fish pate with a truly repellent salt marsh flavor and aroma that brought on an involuntary gag. I spit it out into a napkin and smiled appreciatively. Her glee eroded. Indeed, she went from delighted to crestfallen in a blink. The others in the room had been waiting for a big reaction, and a few even laughed as if they'd gotten one, though nothing especially funny had happened. Yukus didn't know what to say. She was like an infant that had dropped her rattle. The object of her wonder and delight had simply vanished before her eyes. It was the weirdest thing. I was so attracted to her just then. Figuring she deserved something shocking in return, I grabbed her by the smock and pulled her across the width of the serving line, planting a wet, sloppy, low-tide kiss on her stunned mouth. I held it for several long seconds, and she didn't fight. If anything, she kissed back. The peanut gallery rose up with some whistles and lewd commentary, but that too seemed more obligatory than enthusiastic. When I let her go, she just leaned away, looking stunned and wiping her mouth. You're no fun anymore, she admonished. I couldn't deny it or even offer an alternative. The words to explain how I had always appreciated her attention, even when I hadn't, were entirely elusive. I had wanted to change things in my life, to become the sort of man who wasn't always prepared to see people die, who didn't find himself standing in blood as a matter of course, wandering into apparitional conspiracies and impenetrable schemes again and again, a man who could do a day's labor and then sleep, just sleep. I gave my tormentor a smile that likely reflected exactly how I was feeling because her entire aspect altered in response. People prone to cruel jokes can often be penetrating and smart, and occasionally they aren't even all that cruel. It's going to be okay, Jock. They'll figure it out. You'll come through this. I expect so. But my tone had a sharp vertical cliff at the end, and she heard it clearly. Wait, are you off the cruise? Why? You didn't do anything. They don't need me. They don't want me. And I might be more involved than it seems right now, if someone decides that's how it should go. She appeared confused. How are you to blame for some guy going crazy? No, not that. It doesn't make any sense. That's because we saw an opening salvo someone intended as an end move. Her brows were low, her forehead furrowed. I don't really hate you. I never thought you did. Be good to yourself, Yukus. You too, Hijak. I... I have to get back. She retreated through a serving door on the end that led to the galley, looking disturbed and a bit sad. I gave her a little wave as a send-off, but she didn't see it. Thank you.
A while after that, one of the ship guards came looking for me. It wasn't S.G. Ciala, and that felt like a good thing. Every time that woman and I intersected, something pretty lousy usually followed. In this case, it was back to the captain's office, where the vessel's commander was waiting with another man. The new guy was about my age, with dark hair cut short and a hairline receding even more than mine. He could have used a shave. The man wore a leatherette jacket, work pants, and safety boots, and looked like someone who worked hard for a living, even though his hands weren't calloused. There was a metal badge clipped to his jacket lapel. He stood when I came in. Ejock, Captain Barton announced without preamble. This is Investigator Gillies Pearden from the local constabulary. He'd like to ask you a few questions. The man shook my hand briefly, then sat down again. Are we cooperating with this batch, Captain? I think so. We have to trust somebody. These people seem like straight shooters, so why not? Have a seat. I complied. Investigator Pearden looked at me for a moment, and I made an assessment of him that was perhaps less obvious, though maybe a bit more penetrating. Uh, apologies for my appearance, he offered quickly, with a vague gesture that took in his entire person. He had a light, low-speak accent. I was on assignment when HQ called for this. No one else was available. Okay. What can I do for you? I haven't even seen the report yet. Your captain has sent them in, but we are uh, uh, burning the candle by both ends, as that how it goes. Uh, more or less. Should I just state what happened? Yeah, he confirmed, and pointed to a watch-like device on his wrist. He touched it, then said aloud, Police Unit 897B23, case number E585YX, date to be appended. Assignment 3 for this shift. Out system case number to be appended. Location to be referred from recording metadata. Uh, witnesses Ejok DeSantos, AIN citizen, ident to be appended. Mr. DeSantos, do I have your permission to record this interview? Yes, that's fine. Thank you. Captain Yonak Barton is also present for his request. Captain, do you have any objections to this recording? I do not. You may proceed. Thank you, sir. Interview follows, conducted in English. Mr. DeSantos, could you please tell me what happened regarding the incident in question to the best of your memory? And so I did. Investigator Pearden listened and watched me as he listened, and asked questions as he listened. He had a bunch of questions, actually, and came up with more as we went along. He let me speak for a bit, then would hold up a hand to interrupt with a query inspired by my narrative. He was quite sharp, this guy, and his manner of inquiry rang a bell after a while. I'd sort of gotten good at the story by now, but Pearden's questions, which seemed more concerned with the widow Fausel and her children than either the victim or killer, were numerous. It took most of an hour to go through it all. By then, he had a better idea of what this was about, as did I. The captain wanted to be present, but a commander finding an hour's block of uninterrupted time in the middle of a work week was wishful thinking. 
He was called away twice while we talked. Pearden finished up his questions during the second of these and rose to leave. I'm late for another meeting, I'm afraid, he stated politely, studying his watch device. Please extend my gratitude to your captain. It is greatly appreciated. We shall be in contact. You'll need an escort off the ship, investigator. It's policy. I can show you the way. He nodded appreciatively and gestured, so I led us out to the companionway, around a corner, and into a sort of open foyer where the elevator was located. This is a beautiful ship, he commented as we walked, glancing all about. Have you been with it for long? First run, and last, I guess. You're being let go. But of course, I suppose they must. What will you do next? I haven't decided. Will you return to the Alliance? I probably should. He watched me sidelong while we waited for the lift. You probably won't. You're probably right. This thing is still playing out, Investigator. I'm sure you can see that. Whatever it is, it may not be done with me. By sticking close, I might be able to exert some small influence over what's coming. Otherwise, I'm just another loose end, and we know what happens to those. You talk like trouble is an old friend, Mr. DeSantos. Do I? I grinned and shrugged, and that was that. After riding down, we walked to the front passenger hatch, whereupon the cop bid me good shift. He offered his hand, along with a friendly-sounding zo'ontao. Low-speak for until we meet again, with the associated implication that such was assured. I dropped a message in the captain's inbox to the effect that the interview was over and everything seemed okay. I mentioned that I'd be in the crew lounge and that he could page me when he wanted to talk, because I knew he would. He had to. The lounge was a wide cabin containing billiard and smackball tables, along with vending machines and comfy furniture. The place was empty, as usual. Rec facilities for the crew of a ship this size were required by law in the Alliance, but despite its inclusion, few members of staff ever had much free time to use them. Indeed, housekeeping probably saw up more than the rest of us combined. One of the machines was for mixed cocktails. Responsible rec drug use was permitted on your own time. I went with a melon grano highball. Grano cocktails had become increasingly popular as better brands of the once maligned liquor hit the market. It was dispensed with ice and a toothpick chunk of candied honeydew for garnish in a tall, narrow glass. Fused titanium borosilicate, really. Tougher than steel, cheaper than plastic. The drink, clear like water, sweet and bubbly and much softer on the tongue than I'd been expecting, was simply wonderful. I sat in a recliner, sipping slowly, enjoying the moment for what it was. Meditative, quiet, transient.
The hammer came down an hour later, and by first shift next day, I was on the dock, spacer's bag on my shoulder, and a cold passage travel voucher back to Ainspace waiting on account. I had the choice of either more cold sleep aboard Dorcas or of traveling back to the Alliance by myself. Once across the border, however I made it, I'd have statements to give to the cruise line, to territorial authorities, and to the cadence caller that was the route management authority. After some careful thought while I'd been slumbering on ice, Captain Barton had apparently decided he could trust me to do that much on my own. Or maybe he just liked me out of his hair and wasn't too particular about how that happened. Either way, getting clear didn't sound so bad. I accepted the voucher from the prunish purser who made a jagged point of letting me know she had to dip into Dorcas's petty cash to pay for it, which was apparently uncommon and disliked. I could use it with any alliance-bound commercial vessel that had an empty freeze tube. The voucher was valid anywhere in the Empire or its holdings. It was like money, better than money, but they'd given me that too. My wages for the entire scheduled run had been pushed to my hard credit account. I was flush and out of work again. I don't know what's going on, Ejok. No one does, Captain. We leave today, third shift, and Mrs. Fausel needs to be insulated. She's traveling to the next port of call with her husband's body. From there, she and her children will return home. Until that happens, we simply can't have any more problems or reminders. The integrity of the Cleogan cruise lines, after all. The crew whispers, passengers whisper. I get it. Once you're back in the Alliance, you'll need to check in with the proper authorities. Don't make them come looking for you. I would never. And anyway, I've been told your performance in the kitchen isn't exactly stellar. Thank you for the feedback, sir. Chef Irina called to say goodbye as I was packing. She said she'd placed a positive final labor assessment in my file. That was a nice thing to do, so I thanked her and then wished her and the entire team good luck. This whole conversation took less than 30 seconds and was nonetheless halting and weird. I was actually hoping to run into Yukus one last time, which was even weirder, but she would have been busy in the galley. I breathed an unexpected sigh when my feet hit the deck of the hub. It felt solid under my soft shoes, like a strong, familiar laminate of shame and relief. General cargo and fresh supplies were being moved via Dorcas's loading hatch, through which I'd exited. I'd had to clean out my large locker, which was down on the stowage deck. Since cruises could last for months, including subjective time, Crew members were given tiny slices of the ship's cargo space in addition to lockers in their living quarters. It didn't add up to much, but a spacer learned to make do. The escape from Giuliano Colony had amounted to an early departure, and the ship was now looking to reestablish its schedule. Supply deliveries were all awry, and things were pretty loud and frantic as a result. 
I had to hop like a plump rabbit to avoid an obtuse loadbot hauling out a wondrously carved wooden box the size of a sofa. It was the second chance I'd had to admire it, and like most of its ilk, this robot was none too careful with a piece of passenger luggage probably valued at ten times what the automated loader had cost brand new. I took a still image of the box with my retinals and sent it to Archive. Then I turned my back and kept walking. Customs was a breeze. My cross-border pass was in order, and I had nothing but a flight bag of personal crap. There was a messaging kiosk just off the docks, and I paid for a priority missive to the planet Duenda in the Hefa star system over here in the Empire. Just a few lines that would get compressed, encrypted, and pushed over to a local data broker. This firm would transmit the letter to commercial data storage units aboard any ships leaving the system, probably even Dorcas. These ships would carry it and the rest of the scheduled information sent from the firms to all their various next stops, where everything would be sorted, transferred, and then sent on again, and maybe again and again until they each arrived at their ultimate destinations. Final delivery could take minutes of real universe time, or it could take weeks, depending upon the destinations of the messages versus those of the ships that carried them. Priority messages got sent on vessels specifically heading in Duenda's general direction. It could save time, and that mattered right now. The hub of this station was massive and multi-leveled. It had a tram system of its own in place, so I took it over to the battery of elevators in one of the many support struts or spokes. Like on Kezika Station and most others, there were elevators for people, some mainly for cargo, and some just for vehicles. The passenger lift could hold 50 at a time, and it filled up fast. There were benches cordoned off by decorative railings, so at least it wasn't like a cattle car. The trip down would only take minutes, but rich dowagers, frail, retired CEOs, and other such wealthy, sparkly standouts of the citizenry, unaccustomed to the press and smell of humanity, might have found the prospect overwhelming without barriers and creature comforts within sight. I was expecting a plaza of some sort, or a commuting hub, but the doors opened into what seemed like a shopping mall, all crystal and chrome, with hollow signs for various big-name brands, background music, and lots of well-dressed people strolling back and forth. I was confused for a bit before I noticed there were several stops on this ride. I waited until the doors closed and opened again, revealing a level that might have been something like a street. Though I'd consulted a map on my retinals, I was still pretty lost. A diner seemed like a thing worth finding then. I was hungry, but not for haute cuisine. Believe it or not, you can get sick of rich, fancy food, and certainly any food I might have had a hand in making. I called up a station map on my retinals and searched for residential neighborhoods away from all the tourist traps and dignified glamour. The streets off of these were where the locals would go to dine. Ethnic specialties, fast food automats, greasy spoons. That's what I needed, a break from wealthy travelers and excessive luxury 
away from blood and secrets. I picked a direction that seemed to be toward Station Spinward, but which turned out to be off at an angle. At one point I'd taken pride in always finding my way around big stations. I could feel the direction of spin, even when different forms of simulated gravity were being used. As I'd gotten older and the varieties and technologies of stations progressed and improved, this had gotten harder to piece out. In this place, I found myself using maps and posted street guides, which a true stationer always eschewed. Born and raised on a station as I had been, this was an unfamiliar sensation. When I passed the offices for a sanitation company, of all things, it prompted a sudden recollection of Neutrinian in Jardin Star System in the Alliance, back home. This place was at least that size, maybe bigger, and after my initial disconcertion, which I confess was profound, it began to feel good again to stand upon slidewalks and watch the tic-tic cabs and roller cars go by. There was a babble of languages around, low-speak, English, Latin, a smattering of Seishan, a smear of Ingtech among some repair workers, and a gang of old ladies dominating the pedestrian walkway, chattering lightning quick in what sounded like something from old Terra. And the people, real people, not painted, fragile sightseers, not fabulously wealthy tourists without a care in the world, except maybe deadly enemies. Working folks, young, old, students, hustlers and dreamers, drifters like me. This was why I did it. This was why I was out here to be part of it all, not above it, to feel, hear, and, yes, take. There was nothing better in life than vanishing in a crowd that flowed like water, one that didn't see me at all. I could watch. I could forget. I could be me and no one at the same time. I was without direction again, jobless again. I had no upcoming contracts with any commercial cruises. I had been embarking upon a new career phase, after all. Now I'd have to find a room and stay put, assuming I wanted to drop a line to my agent, Doris, in the hopes she might be able to scare up a gunnery gig for her fussy client, her golden boy, as she'd once described me. Realistically, she wouldn't be able to do much, not way out here. That would be a long, unwelcome wait for disappointing news. Right now, I wanted to float, to be carried past a hundred million personal dramas, each free from knowledge of or interest in Ejoc de Santos and all his troubles. After about an hour of this, my feet hurt. I found a street vendor selling kebabs and sat on a bench in a little park-like space between avenues. I watched the traffic and ate, thinking of nothing in particular except how salty and tasty this faux lamb was. A notice popped up on my retinals, overlaid upon the street scene. 
It was for a video call. Flash, flash. Whenever signed to a ship, I usually had all messages ring straight through, in case something urgent came up. I'd forgotten to switch that off when I left Dorcas. It was likely robo-spam, as my contact info was pinged automatically by sales and marketing firms upon stepping aboard the station. It was just possible, though, that someone from the ship still had business with me and was calling direct instead of through the ship's switchboard. Maybe a form needed a signature, or I'd forgotten something aboard. Instead, it came up as something-something-Aziz. No one I knew. It felt weird, so I let the call roll over to Archive, and waited for it to come up as a completed recorded message. Mr. Dorsentors. The dark-complected, darkly-whiskered man, badly mispronounced in a thick, low-speak accent, clearly reading from something off-camera. His image was stabilized by his device in the center of the screen, but the background jiggered about behind him. He was speaking into a handheld communicator as he walked down a street somewhere. I am Detective Sergeant Ulaamakaziz with the Juliano Constabulary. I need to speak with you when it is convenient regarding the incident aboard the ship Dorka of Heater. This is very important. My contact information is appended to this message again. It is important I speak with you as soon as possible. The message ended on a freeze frame of this guy. He was maybe in his late thirties. His dark hair was buzzed on the sides and appeared to be slightly spiked on top. His beard was trimmed into a shallow, uneven goatee. He had a broad nose that looked to have been broken more than once, while his eyes were jet black set in yellow and very large. His aspect was completely neutral, not angry, not inquisitive, not tired or bored, not even overly professional. He had spoken of urgency, but hadn't spoken with any. Frozen behind him was the kebab stand, which was just half a block away. I looked back in that direction, and he was just stepping off the curb and into the park. He was a big guy with wide, meaty shoulders that looked entirely natural, quite unlike the cops of Kezika Station. He was wearing a plain brown suit, and he wasn't alone. Mr. Dozentos, he greeted, stopping a meter away. He flashed open a folding wallet with an official-looking ID card bearing his face. He towered high. He would have even if I'd been standing up. His partner was a shorter guy, girthy but not fat. He wore a dark suit and dark, suspicious eyes. He sauntered behind, slowly and casually, as if I wasn't supposed to notice. Detective Sergeant, I offered, but watched the other man. Your friend have a name? Not one you need to know, DSSE stated flatly. Department policy. Oh? That's a new one by me, I said, returning my gaze to him. Of course. Juliano Colony is new to you, Mr. Dorsentos, he stated, 
then moved to the base of an artistic rock display right next to my bench. He sort of half sat, half leaned on it. His anonymous partner stayed where he was. They didn't speak, so I did. I can't imagine you want me to go over the incident with you right here, detective. So what is it you'd like to talk about? You have the, uh, what do they call it, uh, the shore leave? I shouldn't have thought you could get away. I've been bounced. Skoza? He asked in low speak, confused by the phrase. They fired me. Really? Why is that? I'm tainted. I was there during the attack. I make rich, nervous people more nervous now, but no more rich. Or I might make them nervous, or they think I might. They can't have any of that. Can't have unpleasant reminders. It might reflect badly on the ship or the cruise line. You are stranded? This is legal where you are from? No, I was given a travel voucher. If I were feeling vindictive, I could make a complaint to my union back in the Alliance, but it probably wouldn't go anywhere. Much like you, it seems. He said this without any special emphasis or judgment. He was a stone, this guy. I'll ask again, detective, what do you want? The widow Fausel and the children. Still on the ship? Yeah. Does she plan to leave at some point while the ship is here? No idea. Do you know upon which station she will be departing from the ship? The problem with being a stone is that when a nuanced question pops up, it really stands out. This one inquiry, offered in the same rumbling monotone as the preceding chit-chat, framed the interview in a more revealing light. No idea, I repeated. Why would they tell me? Why, indeed. Will you be staying on Seriano for long? I'll look for a new berth. Might take a while. Unless you know of a ship in need of hands... Sadly, no. Where are you staying while you are here? This neighborhood's nice. I'll probably take a room somewhere around here, I lied. And he nodded. I looked at his partner again, who also nodded, and then smiled. A very slight, ascending crease in a broad, round face, entirely devoid of friendliness. D.S.A.Z. said nothing for a bit, studying me, those beetle-black irises set in French vanilla, absolutely impassive. He could have been a machine, except he wasn't lively enough. Thank you for your time, Mr. Dosentos, he offered at last, standing away from the rock formation and moving past. We must return to headquarters. If you think of anything else... Yep. I turned to watch him go. His short, wide partner lingered for a moment. Nice talking with you, I told him. He smiled again, or whatever you'd call that. 
and trudged off behind his larger cohort, just then hailing an automated cab. It was tangerine in color. My kebab was cold and now tasted mostly of grease. I tossed it in a trash can a few meters away and kept walking. The two men clambered into their car and it moved off into traffic, looping into a roundabout at the end of the park so as to go back the other way. I hovered near the rock formation, waiting for them to pass, then stepped directly into the street. Tires screeched and roller cars lurched to a stop as their collision detection systems locked brakes. I moved to an empty tick-tick in another lane while people shouted exotic curses. I climbed in and told the machine to go straight. Two blocks ahead, that bright orange car moved through traffic easily, doing the speed limit. Two blocks behind, so did I. Perhaps Giuliano Police HQ was located in an expensive apartment building near downtown, because that's where they stopped next. The place had a tough-looking doorman in a flashy uniform who possessed a bulge under his left armpit. This man exchanged a few pleasantries with the short fellow, who could apparently talk after all. Aziz just walked in without comment or pause. I was down the street, my face in a spray of flowers out on the sidewalk in front of a vendor. The station map in front of my eyes stated that the place was called the Bearson Arms Hotel. There was a link to a current real estate listing that I opened up with a head gesture. It revealed the place to be a long-term residency apartment building. A vacancy was opening up soon, and applications were being accepted. There was contact info, and I placed a call to the real estate broker's reception AI. An animated video feed opened up, showing a depiction of a young man. He had a blue halo around him, indicating his artificial status. English, please? I asked, when it answered. Certainly, Mr. DeSantos, it replied with a smile, noting my comm ID. I am Lomat. The artificial assistant for the Bearson Arms. How may I help you? Lomat, I'm interested in the apartment you folks advertise as being available soon. It seems like a nice neighborhood. Oh, it is, sir. Would you care to put in an application? Well, I've never been inside before. Can I arrange a tour? The suite is still occupied, but I can put you down for a tour of the rest of the building. When would be a convenient time? How about right now? I was just walking by. I'm contacting the Bearson guest manager as we speak to see if someone is available. Do you require an English speaker? If at all possible, I can get by on low speak, but only if they don't talk too fast. I laughed and it laughed, implying it wasn't sapient. I'd met self-aware AIs in the past. None of them ever laughed at my jokes. Most humans didn't either, which only further proved the point. <laughs> Very good. The machine then asked if I was planning on settling down here, and I told it yes. It asked what I did for a living, 
and I told it shipping. It bantered expertly according to its programming, and I bantered back according to my inclination. This went on for a minute or two before it interrupted me between polite chuckles to say that someone named Yali would be meeting me at the door. An ident picture of a perky young thing popped up on the vid feed, displaying a wall of snowy teeth through a wide grin. I thanked Lomat profusely for its help, just as if I believed it could care, and closed the connection. When I got to the entranceway, the big uniformed man and Yali, a small woman hardly into her majority, were waiting. The doorman gave me a bright greeting in low speak with a smile to match, which faded when he saw my attire. I was in one of my flight suits, which was all I owned for outerwear. Little Yali kept grinning, and I could tell she didn't see what the big man saw, a fat, middle-aged loner way out of his element. Hello, I'm Ejok DeSantos. You'll have to excuse how I'm dressed. I just came from the hub. I had to oversee an offload from my ship. I like to be close for that sort of thing. You must be Yali? That's me. Pleasure to meet you. We shook hands. Up close, she seemed even younger and slighter, really like a child. She had dark brown skin and long hair in tight curls pulled into a puff in back. She wore a patterned yellow dress in a conservative cut. Nothing fancy or especially businesslike. Her accent was that of a spacer's tone. For his part, the doorman hadn't changed the expression he'd settled into at all, but it didn't darken, so I pressed on. Are you from the Alliance? I asked curiously. I'm from all over, she replied, still smiling, as if she had lots of practice with this question. My folks are spacers. Our ship, Basquiat, is in for an overhaul. It'll take a year at least. Seemed like a good time for me to branch out a bit. I work in the office here, but they tell me you requested a native English speaker? I did. Shamefully, my low speak is atrocious. Sorry to take you away from your duties. Not at all. I appreciate the break, she offered politely, then gestured to the door. Shall we? I nodded with a smile and did the same at the big man as I followed her in. He nodded back stiffly, like it was painful. The place had a low lobby just inside, but it was stately, cool, and quiet. The floors were of some polished composite that looked like satin, shiny as a new day. The walls were of dark faux wood, and there was mauve velvet here and there draped like curtains and bumpers, along with green plants that spilled over from tall urns the size of a person. It reeked of money, but smelled like paradise. Yali introduced me to the concierge a tall, thin guy behind a high desk right up front. His name was something I didn't quite catch, but he nodded, saying a few pleasantries in low speak and then again in Seishan before we moved further in. There was a bank of four elevators along the far wall. We made our way past these through an unmarked door of the same fake wood. It was an office. 
My boss, Mr. Durat, normally does the meet and greets, but he's sort of in the same boat with Inglis as you are with Lowspeak. I chuckled and followed her in. A dapper guy in a three-piece suit came out from another room when we entered. He was probably in his mid-fifties or so and sported an overly manicured beard that was mostly gray. Hello, he greeted thickly and with a bow. I smiled and offered my hand, which he took reluctantly, as if it seemed a bit forward. He said something I couldn't follow to my young hostess, who replied easily in low speak, explaining for a bit. He then asked her a question in particular, and she turned back to me. Mr. Durat was wondering what the name of your company might be? Ah, of course. Two Saints Diversified Holdings, incorporated over in Ainspace. Then I half-whispered conspiratorially, Please keep it to yourselves, but I'm about to expand into the Empire. She smiled and relayed this to Mr. Durad, who also smiled, nodding understandingly. He then gave her some instructions, which she listened to closely. This went on for a bit. The office had an outer desk that bore a few colorful and irreverent knickknacks that seemed to be out of place for an older fellow with facial hair better trained than a circus dog, but not for a child on her first position away from family looking to build something of her own. They broke up their conversation when it was just shy of rude to be excluding me. Pleasure to meet you the man shuffled through with another bow. Likewise, I replied with a head bob. Bowing was a thing over here, but you only saw it with people who actually worked for a living. I'd never once spotted any member of the elite classes do more than that same head thing I'd just offered. You witnessed it variably when visiting relatives in the Empire, at least I did among the Vernays clan, it was what someone like Mr. Durad would have expected, either from someone above him in social rank or someone entirely confused by such things. And I was both. I followed Yali out and we walked to the elevators. The Bearson Arms had supplemental AG on each floor, so there was no gravity-related discomfort. Some recreational facilities were on the roof, along with a pool that overlooked this entire section of the station. This was large, shallow, and round, with crystalline water so clear I thought at first it was drained. Without wind, there were virtually no ripples. That tended to unnerve people who'd come here from some planet or other, she expressed, but water that seemed to move all on its own had the opposite effect on stationers. The Bearson Arms offered a compromise, in that there were controls available to set some tiny waves in motion, if desired. I didn't hide how impressive such a small touch really was. We moved on. Bearson Arms had a beautiful conference hall-slash-ballroom on the second floor. Yali claimed that it saw regular use. Really? I was assured there was much to see, even if the rooms in question were unavailable for viewing just yet. Mr. Durad was so, so sorry about that. 
The girl spoke quietly but profusely, getting everything out that her boss had instructed her to say. I smiled and listened, letting her work. When we came to the gym, I decided this had been enough prelims, so I interrupted her pitch with a raised finger. Question, what are the neighbors like? That's a make-or-break detail for me. Oh, very quiet, sir, came her quick reply. I mean, we don't let troublemakers in, but just the same, each suite is fully soundproofed. Unless you see them in the lobby or knock on a random door, I doubt you'd even know they were there. Okay, but, I mean, what sorts do you have here, right now? I can't overemphasize how important this is to me. I've had problems with neighbors in the past, even in some very exclusive places. Well, um, no names, of course, but we have the head of a major insurance corporation in residence. There's an elderly gentleman who came into his fortune many years ago. I'm not sure how, but he's the sweetest fellow you'd ever hope to meet. Several executives and their families. Uh, we have one of Juriano Colony's Lantzmein, which is a government administrator. He works with the station's Muretón in the Confercieto downtown. Or, uh, that'd be the mayor, I guess you'd say, in City Hall. Although he's probably more like a president in a station of this... Anyone else? I quizzed, because I'd yet to hear something helpful. Well... I can't spread stories, you understand. Yali, it'll go no further, I assured, looking as sincere as I could manage considering the theatrical quality of the entire tour. She thought a bit and nodded, then moved her head close and whispered, We have an actual noblewoman in residence right now. Divorcee, she's leaving at the end of the week. It's her rooms you'd be assuming. I can't tell you her name, of course. Oh, of course, but are we talking about, say, a duchess, or just the third cousin twice removed of an old count somewhere? These things matter. She is a noblara Omano, came the quiet reply. The wife, I guess ex-wife now, of a hereditary knight. A proper lady, then. Excellent. Uh, though... Rank-wise, is it really all that impressive? Well, I understand she has influence. And there it was, the magic word. The rest of the tour was tedious, though I tried not to show it. After a time, she had us back in the lobby and invited me into the office so that she and her boss could get my application together. I started to agree, then acted like I was receiving a message via my retinals. I excused myself a bit, stepped off to the side, and made a show of talking to a subordinate who was relaying troubling news. Uh, Yali, I'm so sorry. I have an urgent situation back in the hub. Cargo routing issues. I have to take care of it right now. I want to thank you for your time, and please also convey my thanks to your boss. I'll be in touch soon. And then I walked away, gesticulating to the air, emphatically questioning no one about just how in heck did such a screw-up even happen. Outside, the doorman nodded again, 
still with the same expression, as if nothing that had happened out here, while I was lying to a child inside, had been able to scratch his surly mood. That sort of constancy was inspiring. Cab? I asked, between barking at fictional employees. He muttered into a watch device, and within half a minute, an automated taxi arrived. Not a lowly tick-tick, but a full-sized thing with plush interior. I hopped in and told it to take me to a particular neighborhood on a lower level. It was time to find a diner, a place I could sit and think and not be distracted by the pizzazz of other people, by the fawning of their underlings or the standards signaled by their wealth. I needed time to check the society news, because members of the noble classes didn't exist in a vacuum. Yali's sort of discretion aside, such people made waves wherever they went. And this nobilada Omano was making some big ones. Enough maybe to wash over a certain kitchen incompetent and drag him under. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio, novels, and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.